Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a game designer and founding chair of New York University's Game Center. An influential writer, speaker and thinker on video games, he's taught generations of emerging young designers. The New York Times once described him as the reigning genius of the mysteries of games. My guest's experience is not merely academic, however. In 2005, he co-founded Area Code, the studio which subsequently released one of the best-regarded puzzle games yet made, Drop 7. Most recently, he joined forces with his son, who is also a game designer, and together they released Babel Royale, a free-to-play battle royale influenced by the board game Scrabble. Making games combines everything that's hard about building a bridge with everything that's hard about composing an opera, he once said. Games are operas made out of bridges. Welcome, Frank Lance. Thank you. It's it's lovely to be here. So that uh, that quotation has become pretty famous a few years ago. It was used to introduce a video game exhibition at the V&A Museum of Design here in London. Are you still happy to describe video games in that way? Yeah, I think that captures something of my understanding of how what games are in the sense that they I think of them as being works of culture, creative works, aesthetic works, 
works of art, you know, they have all of those properties of being imaginative expressions uh, of ideas of creating experience and 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 all of that, all of that quality. While at the same time, having this intense relationship to engineering, to problem solving, to the the kind of cognitive work that we do when we are trying to figure out the 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 truth of something when we're trying to puzzle out the solution to to a concrete problem in the world in a, in a kind of practical way right um <laughs> like like so yeah so the, i think it is this yeah this relationship to the sort of engineering aspects of of bridge building and and then like all of the kind of ineffable and irreducible qualities that that go into making go into making art. Now it's that like having said that, look, there's lots of engineering in opera. Just ask anyone who's ever put on an opera, and they'll be like, yeah, there's problem solving and there's all kinds of like logical, you know, work that goes into practical, pragmatic problem solving that goes into making a work of art. And and also there's lots of aesthetics in bridge building and bridge design. You know what I mean? There's like, <laughs> yeah, these are also works of culture that that can be more or less beautiful in addition to having to stand up. But yeah, but I think, in, yeah, that, that does still, I think, um, capture a lot of what I think about as, as sort of the central dynamic of, of games. The way, I love the way you describe games. What a great answer. And that, I sort of feel like it, it, captures everything that could be interesting to a human being is somewhere in that mix that you've just laid out there so so w- why do you think video games aren't interesting to everyone what is what are the reasons for that oh um yeah yeah why aren't they more popular uh, <laughs> i think i think the part of the answer is that they they're they're mostly terrible like have you tried playing a video game recently simon like even people like <laughs> us who d- d- just like full-heartedly devoted our lives to them like, I mean, you've got to be honest. And don't you sometimes think, gee, is it too late to get a new hobby? Like you look around <laughs> and they still, they still feel like they're like, yeah, kind of like trapped in this like strange kind of like, they're, they got one foot in kids culture still. And they're still kind of like having a hard time kind of uh, growing up a little bit and being less kind of juvenile. And, uh, and, and they're also... I don't know. I think they're mostly fine. I'm not a big pessimist. I'm I'm not a person who's like, oh, you know, the main mainstream games suck. I think I think all games are just it's they're they're hard, right? They're hard to interact with. Uh, they they are more challenging to kind of uncork what's good about them than than any other comparable form of of culture. They have this kind of built in challenge, which makes even though that they are universal in a sense, right? If you like I do, if you think of video games as as part of the broad spectrum of games in play, then you start to understand, okay, well, this is kind of universal. We all pretty much yes. uh, do uh, play, you know, and 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 have have an element of games in play in our lives. But even even then, some people are drawn more to it and some people are not. Some people are naturally drawn to to wordplay, to playful social interaction, to imaginative kind of responses, unpredictable responses to to situations, um, and then some people are not, and 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 so I think that's that makes a lot of sense. Hey. And then when it comes to video games in particular, uh, video games are still very firmly part of the domain of computers and software, and computers are still 
devices for hobbyists. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like getting a game to run on your computer is it, just an ordinary game <laughs> to run on your computer is still a kind of complicated process of like figuring out a, a, a technical puzzle, right? It, it It is something that you have to have an appetite for. Uh, you have to have an appetite for like, oh, I need to update my drivers and make sure that I'm in the right resolution mode. And do I have enough RAM? And maybe I'm on some earlier version of the operating system and I need to, you know what I mean? Like, and, and that, and I, I think it's to their credit, honestly, that computers are still like this. The computers have not evolved into refrigerators or rather <laughs> they, they did evolve into refrigerators and those are called phones. Right. 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 Computers evolved into, they finally got to a point where just everyone uses them. No one knows how to maintain a fridge. Like you're not, you and I aren't in the back, like no. unscrewing the Freon right, right. pipes and like, the, like updating the RAM. <laughs> right. But we are doing that with our computers. Right. Um, and is. and for that nature, uh, I, it, for that for those reasons, I think c- computers really still ha- have have kept this kind of hobbyist mentality, where you already, by the time you get around to playing whatever game, you've already kind of indicated that you have a certain appetite for technical problem solving. And then when you get into it, whatever when you get into Destiny or 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 whatever you're playing, that it's that same flavor. Like you're doing a similar thing. Like you're running yes. around getting just the right kind of like tech, trying to find the right technical solution. Wait a minute, what is this quest? And how do I do this other thing? And it's like, oh yeah, you got to read the, de- you got to read the details and figure out how it all fits together. And you're kind of like figuring out how the gears fit together and you're puzzling it out. And it's, a, and it's similar to maintaining a computer in the first place. So I think that's, I think that's part of the answer, and but they're doing fine. I mean, it's not like, yeah, right. I mean, they're not <laughs> like, like if you think about a, what truly is universal and global, it, it's it's what it's it's like hip hop right hip hop is like is that something where like pop music in general and in particular uh hip hop i think you just see how it has some kind of like like magic ability to get translated into different cultures and and adopted by different communities and people all over the planet in a way that is is really fluid whereas i think games you know, they don't have that. But I mean, I mean, if you look at soccer, I mean, soccer is like that, right? And and soccer is a game. Yeah. And it's not that different uh, from, you know, Rocket League or or something, you know. Rocket League is just soccer where you have to, you know, install RAM. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Frank, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun, I can tell. So the, um, the premise of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games you want to install on your ideal video game machine sort of like a super nintendo mini or something like that and yeah can you tell us about the first game you've picked which is from 1995 uh can you tell us what the game is and when you first experienced it and why you love it oh of course wipeout So Wipeout, first of all, I love this project. I think it's interesting and and it's like in a weird it's in a weird way it's harder to pick five than it is to pick one. You pick one, it's like, oh, what's your favorite game? And you're like, well, it doesn't really matter because it's so artificial. But then you, you widen the scope a little bit and say, okay, what are your what are, what are five great games? Then you kind of want to like dig in a little bit and treat it more seriously. At first I thought, 
like, should I interpret this question as, you know, really thinking about what would be the form factor of, of, a, of a device? Like if I was on a desert island and I had, is it a handheld device? Does it have a screen? Is there a keyboard and mouse or is it touch in it? And I, I, I gave up because I thought, okay, that's too hard. I don't want to try to like engineer some imaginary device and then figure out what are the games that I love that I would want to be on there. And instead I interpreted it as just being, look, pick pick five games that you would want to play, that you, games that mean something to you that are really important, but also that you would genuinely want to play. So right, right. this first one, Wipeout, is um, a game that really means a lot to me. I think it was one of the big inspirations in my life and in my career. I was, I would, I'd moved to New York City uh, I was starting to make, uh, I was actually uh, working at a place that did uh, computer graphics and special effects, but I was doing like Photoshop stuff uh, and... For like movies or for video games or? Yeah, this was, uh, yeah, it was a place called uh, RGA uh, and they did special effects for film and they did title sequences and they were starting to get into doing image processing. That's what I was working on, like large scale, like uh, Photoshop you know, kind of uh, image manipulation. Um, but then also, because that introduced Macs into the picture, they were starting to say, oh, maybe we should start developing software. So I was kind of helping found the interactive division within this within this context, right? And so during that time, right around that that era, so what is this again? Tell me that in 1990... 1995. 1995, right. We got a demo disc of the, of the first Wipeout. And we played that thing so much. And the demo, the demo, it was just like a single track. And, um, and as you, you know, Wipeout, right? Simon, I mean, you know, the beauty yeah. of this, of this game. Futuristic racing yeah, game. Futuristic maglev racing. We played that first track over and over and over again. And we would sit around a bunch of us. And if you crossed the finish line, it reset the game. And then you would have to like choose the race if you if you if you won they would like reset but if you if you didn't if you just canceled then you could just instantly restart the race oh because it was a demo disc you mean yeah like if you cross if you finished the race it would be like oh okay congratulations you finished the demo right, right it would just cause it would just cause you to have to go back to the main menu and restart again which okay, took like okay. you know whatever like a minute or you know 45 <laughs> seconds or something right so you were not allowed to cross the finish line because the next person was waiting to go. So when you got to the finish line, you had to like wipe out. You had to literally wipe out and like crash into the stands and let and then cancel. So you were trying to race and try to win, but then you were not allowed to finish the race. Right. Because you had to cancel and restart because that was a faster way to get back into the loop. That's how that's how sick we were to like just keep the flow going. There was the thing about Wipeout for me was this was the first video game that felt like an album. This felt like teenage culture. This didn't feel like culture for 10-year-olds. This felt like culture for 18-year-olds. Yes. It was at the height of, of the rave scene, and it had this amazing soundtrack that was, you know, the Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers yes. and all these amazing kind of rave groups. The graphic design was by this studio called Designers Republic, which did all kinds of like album covers, like techno album covers and rave graphics. And the way that that played into the world building of this science fiction scenario and just the overall sense of like 
pop culture. Like this is a work of pop culture, not a word, not a work of kids culture, a work of pop culture. And I mean, I just, I just loved it for, for the experience of it. But in addition, this idea that like, oh, games can be sophisticated, cool pop culture, um, in the way that albums are, I, that was it for me. I was like, this is the kind of thing I want to make. Like, this is clearly how I want to spend the rest of my life. Especially such good timing working at a company like you were at where, you know, right at that moment where the PlayStation is coming out and it feels like it's the cusp of a new thing, 3D graphics coming along and you're looking for, I suppose, you know, more, more mature, perhaps expressions of what a video game could be. And then along yeah. comes this game that, that encapsulates all of that. Like you say, the designers Republic had designed all of the team logos and everything. And it, it just looked like nothing, nothing before did it. And the interface, the interface was also influenced by that. And so it had this like super flat kind of poppy, like, like, Oh, it's just, it's just gorgeous. And, uh, and beautiful and fun in a way that is, still ahead of its time yeah it's still most games don't like it's so rare for a game to come along and kind of feel like yeah. cool teenage pop culture instead of like you know like a you know a, a dorky van painting come to life you know what i mean yeah which i love yeah. I, I mean i love i love frank frazetta <laughs> and i love yeah. i love paintings on the sides of vans i love heavy metal and yeah, and and good you know good cartoons and good kids culture are fine i've got nothing against yes. them but it but i do yeah i st- really still hanker after after that kind of uh slightly more sophisticated uh vibe that wipeout had it's just a different uh, it's a different tradition is it because a lot of that heavy metal stuff comes through in dungeons and dragons yeah which influences fantasy and blah 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 which has always been part of computer games whereas here you had sony really at its most disruptive entering a you know a territory that it really had no place being and suddenly can come in and do a completely different i mean i know it's a bit different in the uk to the us but certainly in the uk the marketing of around wipeout was so different um, a completely different audience they were trying to hit um but yeah well it worked it worked on me simon <laughs> and and so then in addition to just having that kind of like important milestone for me personally um i also think that those early wipeout games are incredibly playable. So you put that on my console, I'm happy to just like go back. And and I think that's, it's an example of the type of game that you can play over and over again, build your skills, get deeper and deeper into it, discover, you know, new techniques. And and really, it's just got a wealth of, of play in it. So I think it's a good yeah. choice for that reason as well. So I just want to go back a little bit earlier than this time of your life, because, you know, this is obviously the moment at which you're converted to the idea of video games and what they can achieve. But have they been a part of your life as a younger person when you were growing up? I mean, sure. Like um, going to the arcade was a big part of my my teenage years. And before that, we had we had like an early console. I think we had like a Pong machine that you buy at Sears, the big yellow one, uh, or like an Atari. I don't remember exactly, but you know, we, we, we played that and I really liked it. Where did you grow up by the way? Uh, I grew up in the Midwest, Kansas city, Missouri. Okay. Um, and then moved out to the East coast when I was like uh, a teenager. What, what did your parents do by the way? Oh, they're both actors actually. Oh, okay. My dad was an actor and a, and a voiceover guy. They were both in, both in the theater and my mom <laughs> is, um, yeah, also does like performance and acting and singing and stuff like that. So I kind kind of a theater kid. Okay, but then after like also like prior to this, prior to me being in New York and working at this thing and encountering Wipeout, 
I had also, I mean, I'd already been bit a little bit by the bug by playing things, like just by playing early computer games, like Load Runner. Like I had a friend who worked in a computer lab and he would bring this ancient compact portable computer. It's called a portable computer. It was like a big <laughs> giant bucket and right. had a tiny little amber <laughs> screen on it. And and we would stay up late and we'd, we'd play Load Runner, but he... he he also had like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that that early um, adventure game. So playing Zork, playing Hitchhiker's Guide. I think, I think playing Hitchhiker's Guide was maybe the first time that I was like, okay, maybe this is what I want to do with my life. You know what I mean? Like, like the magic of that, of there being this little bit of interactive literature. Because I was really big into science fiction and fantasy, and so having this 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 kind of living story that you could interact with, it just the magic of software. Uh, so I think I was already being drawn into that world by by those kinds of early PC games. And was that your you know, what 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 did you want to do when you were a kid when you grew up? Um, originally I wanted to be a cartoonist, uh-huh. and um, and then when I went to college, I was going to do acting, and so I actually got a a scholarship. I you know at University of Maryland to to go and, oh, and be in the theater department. But then I realized like like a year in, I was like. I don't, I don't really like acting. Like, I wouldn't do it. Like, and I was um, really getting into painting. So I was hanging out with all my art friends at the at the art social building. And did you feel pressure to go into acting because of your parents then? No, I just I just liked it. I mean, I just assumed okay. I was going to do it because uh-huh. I was into it and I enjoyed it. And I guess you've been around. But it. I think yes. once I once you get to college, you know, the whole point of college is like you're sorting shit out. You're trying to figure out, okay, what is it that I want to do? And so I think it was just yeah, yeah. I think it was just a I was you know, really excited about just trying to imagine what, what I might want to do in the world. And, and so I, I, I realized, uh, and also look, I think part of this was just a mistake because in my head, actors aren't interesting because they're not making the stuff. Like they're just interpreting the stuff. They're, they're maybe if I was a playwright or a director, I would be interested in theater, but the idea of just like memorizing words and then going on stage and performing them, like that's not the interesting part. I want to be the kind of person who makes the thing and who is coming up with the original idea. I think in retrospect, that was both very arrogant. It's kind of the arrogance of youth where you're like, I'm, you know what I mean? Like I need to be the person at the center of, you know, <laughs> but also um, a misunderstanding of how much uh, creativity there is in acting. I think actually like, good actors are creating, creating something original and solving pro- really interesting problems. And But anyway, that was what, was in my head at the time and it really drove me towards doing art so but at the same time I was really in compu- into computers like I said I was big into science fiction and I was also really influenced by this book Godel Escher Bach by Douglas Hostetter it's an early book about artificial intelligence and and so like math and puzzles I was terrible at math <laughs> but I was really into computers even in my art it was already very procedural and conceptual and so then um Eventually, I tried to like bring those things together and got it started doing computer graphics and started trying to like write software that generated paintings and, you know, things like that. And that that's kind of like drew me into the orbit of making digital stuff. Um, and then eventually it became clear that games were where that was happening. Like if you really if you try to understand the overlap between art and computers, it is games like games mm-hmm. are the exploration of interactivity as an art form, right? As something creative and expressive and imaginative. And, and so 
yeah, it was a natural fit for me to to really um, be drawn into that. Okay, we will we'll pick that story up again in a minute, but let's turn to your second game for your perfect console, um, which is I think a Game Boy Advance game from two thousand and six. Can you tell us what it is? Ah, Rhythm Tengoku. I include this one because it might be my favorite video game if you held a gun to my head and, and made me pick. You know, I'm a, I'm a man of simple tastes, Simon. You know what I mean? I, 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 like, I don't think that's true. I like good video yeah. games. I like Shadow of the Colossus. You know what I mean? Like, I like, I like Doom. I, I, you know what I mean? I like the big ones. Um, but there is something about Rhythm Tengoku, which is this early rhythm action game that has a kind of WarioWare structure um, in that it's lots of little games, each one of which has its own mechanic, each one of which is an exploration of interactivity and music. Uh, and and there's something really magical about the game. It is a game, I think, that has an incredible amount of personality and charm. You really feel the spirit of, of the people who made it and is very original and and it and it has i think just this it's deeply satisfying yeah. um i think in in a way that is is hard to put into words these little tiny cartoons it's also a game that is perfectly suited to the 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 platform on which it was launched which i, I think was the gba is that, i think is that so right? yeah. yeah yeah i think so too and so yeah. it just i have this in my head it's just like this perfect little miniature masterpiece i'll give you one example. There's one mini game in Rhythm Tengoku that's a little ghost who's sneaking past a gate. And the way the mechanic in this particular mini game works is they play a little song and you're you're pushing the button along to the song. And then over time, the song fades down and gets quieter and quieter until you have to push the button in rhythm to the song and it's only playing in your head. The song is no longer playing. I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps just describing it. Uh, <laughs> and and it's a ghost. Like the whole point of it is that there's this, in the background, there's this minimalist cartoon of in the background, there's a little suburban house and then made of, just made of a few lines. And then there's the fence. And then there's the little ghost to sneak, there's a little ghost to sneak it past. And, and the song just gets quieter and quieter. And it's just, it's so beautiful. It's so mysterious and and sweet and beautiful yeah. uh i just absolutely love it and there's and there's a ton of things so in addition to having these little like gems these lovely little uh moments the overall structure of of rhythm to goku is also great it's there all of the little games are organized into in these different ways and you're trying to get them all done and you're like jumping around to, to different levels completing them there's this really satisfying sense of of exploring the overall space of possibilities mm. and that they had fun designing and now you're having fun mastering as a, as a player. I think I'm mostly drawn as a player, mostly drawn to thinky games. <laughs> I'm mostly uh, a kind of strategy person. I really like games about decision making and you know what I mean? That whole thing. But I 
ironically, like, yeah, this, this might be my absolute favorite game. And it's not, it's not a game of strategy, right? This is not a game that you're discovering new emergent properties of the system and the <laughs> rules are producing all kinds of unexpected, surprising, you know, interactions. It's like, no, this is, this is uh content as we say nowadays. There's just, there's no room for the designer to hide in these games as well, particularly WarioWare and Rhythm Tengoku. They're so brutal. You have to have such clarity of thought about your design yeah. idea for it to work, for it to communicate instantly to the player what it is they've got to do, for it to be pleasing. There's usually a little joke in there. It's doing yeah. so much with so little so quickly. And actually there's very few studios i think that can pull it off without their elegance because you see when other companies try and do sort of mini game micro game collections they're never they're, they're often never quite as good are they but it's, yeah it's <laughs> really true and um i just I, I love it and that precision that you're describing is 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 part of the overall aesthetic it's a perfect fit for the gba itself which feels like this lovely little clockwork device that you're holding in that feels magic and just the clarity of just the amount of pixels that that you have to work with so the whole thing just like fits together. and and it it means that this imaginary console that that you're asking me to make has to contain that somehow i'm not sure how <laughs> yes. to contain it but it's going to have to have maybe just a whole separate module just for playing <laughs> with the Goku. so you're designing a wii u here oh dear yeah <laughs> planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I want to come to the part of your career when you uh, when you come to form Area Code. So so by that yeah. time, I, I guess you'd um, you'd moved fully into working with video games, and you'd been director of design at a company called Game Lab. Um, what was it? You, can you just tell us what was going on in your life at that time? And yeah. What made you What made you make the jump to set up your own company? So this was New York uh, in the '90s, and there just wasn't that much in terms of the in game industry. Um, and so we had a lot of like little startups, like we had a lot of kind of like indie game studios before that was, uh, very popular just because we didn't have big AAA studios really in New York. So there were lots of little things happening. Uh, flash games were, were big and, and people kind of had to figure out how to make a career, uh, outside of the kind of traditional structure of a AAA environment and, and economy. And so you were, you would do stuff like work for hire or you do flash games that, 
you'd make, you know, free flash games for Lego and or for Cartoon Network and and things like that. Try to work, you know, find find ways of, of maybe educational games and stuff like that. And so that was kind of the the overall landscape that I was operating in and doing working for a bunch of different studios and mostly for for Game Lab and and then at the same time I was doing big experimental work because I was really interested still in exploring the possibility of new kinds of games like rather than just trying to make things that fit into the existing framework of you know the games market I was just like what can you do with games as a form that no one's ever done before so I was really interested in large scale games that people play face to face in real time designing games for like conference settings where hundreds of people would or thousands of people would would play a game over the course of of a couple of days or designing uh games that people would play on the street running around <laughs> that incorporated computers and software but that weren't designed to be played on a on a computer <laughs> um but we're trying to like try to find a a blend between the complexity you get from making from having software in the game is that when you made the pa- the Pac-Man game in New York, the live action Pac-Man game? Yeah, exactly. Like uh, Pac-Man Hat, which was uh, this is I was teaching a class in in this. It's called they call Big Games, and as their final project, all the students in the class got together and made Pac-Man Hatton, which was a version of Pac-Man that you play running around on the street grid of of Manhattan and things like that is exactly what I was really interested. Uh, the big urban game, which I, I I did in collaboration with some other folks. And so I was, yeah, I was doing these bigger experimental kind of location-based things. That's how I met my my co-founder of Ericode, Kevin Slavin, who was kind of aware of these things. And he was coming out of a background in advertising. And he was saying, hey, maybe we could start a company that makes these kinds of games as an alternative to traditional like marketing and advertising. Like you just, you make these things, they generate a lot of interest. You get them sponsored by a technology company or something like that. And so that was kind of the the roots of uh, of Area Code. It's, a, it's such a good name for a company <laughs> doing that sort of work as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's Kevin Slavin, <laughs> Area Slash Code, uh, which is you know what I mean—the blend between the real and the physical, and 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 then the virtual and and software. But the, and the thing that I was really interested in is, I love computers, I love software, but it felt like in the transition to becoming software games had left something behind, which was the social component. Like games up until computer games, games are primarily a kind of stylized form of social interaction. Like when we play chess together, we are doing this like strange, strangely intimate cognitive dance where your mind is making up a puzzle for my mind to make up a puzzle for your mind and I'm responding to each other and or if you think of sports and you know board games and card games, there, there's so much psychology, there's so much drama in, oh, I'm going to measure my problem-solving ability against yours and we're going to compete. And But at the same time, we're kind of collaborating to make something complex and interesting. And in a single-player video game, all of that gets kind of shorn away hey. and, then, and then gets replaced with... A cartoon of a of a plumber who's trying to rescue a princess from a monkey, <laughs> you know. And uh, <laughs> wait a minute, is that how the story goes? I'm not sure. That's how the story goes. Uh, I'm not a big story guy. So I was really interested. Oh, can we bring some of that back? Right? It's like the return of the repressed. You know, this is because this was the this was so much. This is what so much of the juice. Like, because like otherwise, games are just math problems. Yes. You know what I mean? But like, like 
games are 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 math problems with tons of drama in them. <laughs> I don't know. They they they're they're like ways of testing your 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 patience and your cleverness and your ability to observe and your sometimes your strength, your your speed and like all of these different qualities and or to like work with other people to kind of cooperate and collaborate and on, on a team and have these big dramatic kind of exciting suspenseful things that we share and for that to be turned into like a thing you do in a dark room by yourself with a machine is like look there's there's a beauty to it like i don't deny that there, that that is there's something particularly beautiful about about that that version of games that just you and the machine and this imaginary yes. world they are a kind of a new form of literature or whatever but i was really interested in like oh could we kind of have both right can you get the computers the complexity the software the virtual space the imaginative virtuality and the bodies the face-to-face -face interaction the the the, the the excitement and the, of the psychology and drama that that it's like these are humans together in a space doing a thing together yeah um and so that was really what drove uh, area code made it happen and but how did you get from that then which is you know obviously about quite quite physical yeah. interactive games between people to then you know this very elegant concise puzzle game yeah. drop seven that that really is what makes you famous around the world i suppose oh my god didn't do you know well only in england unfortunately simon i wish the rest of the world loved drop seven as much oh, as, really? as english people i didn't know that british people yeah british people think drop seven is like tetris yes yeah, like tetris and too. most <laughs> yeah and most and most people outside of the emerald isle I've never heard of it. Okay. But bless you. Bless you. I'm so happy. Look, I'll give you an abbreviated version of the story. We were approached to do an alternate reality game for the TV show Numbers. It was a CBS TV show about a mathematical genius who solves crimes. And we were aware of ARGs. This was during the kind of height of, of ARG popularity, which meant like 50 people you know, played them. Uh, <laughs> but it was like, I love bees, yep. you know, all of those famous ARGs, you know, were, had happened recently. And we, we knew that we were working in a space that was similar because ARGs are also about large scale collaboration and so they're very social. They're about people working together, but we had always been a little bit skeptical of ARGs because they're one of those games that everyone loves the sound of them. Like, that's why people read about ARGs on the front Finish. page of the Wall Street Journal. Oh, my God, this is this new kind of game that blends reality and fiction. It yes. blurs the line between the virtual and the real and blah, blah, blah. But no one actually plays them. Like, everyone feel like knows about them and loves them. Like, David Fincher loved the idea so much. He wrote, you know, he made this whole movie about them. And so they, they have such a large space in people's imagination. But very few people actually play them because they're almost unplayable. Yeah. Like if you find out about an ARG and you're like, oh, I'd like to check that out. What are you supposed to do? You you go to the website and it's like, wait a minute, is this is this over? Did it happen already? Or yeah, am I, yeah. I'm not supposed to know because it's supposed to be confusing. So, so you puzzle it out. You try to figure it out. You finally figure out, okay, there's some puzzle here or something. And then it turns out, yeah, no, this was, it's been over for two years. Like there's no way to, like, it's just, you know what I mean? It's, it's such a confusing, opaque, off-putting thing right. that it is there's like a handful of like hardcore fans who do them. So we so we said, okay, we're going to do an ARG, but we're going to solve this puzzle. This is a design problem. We're going to embrace the design problem. And so we decided we're going to we're going to make an ARG about an evil genius game designer who's going to be featured in an episode of the TV show. 
He's going to make this game that looks like a simple puzzle game. It looks like a pop cap game, but is actually secretly this plot to in to addict people to doing this mathematical, this big mathematical problem solving, this like distributed calculation right. that looks like a game, but really what we're doing is crunching this enormous calculation as if it were uh, a citizen science project. And what that calculation is, is going to break the encryption by which the stock market protects its um, operations. And he's going to bring down the whole world economy. Like that was the, that was the plot. Perfect. But at the heart of this story, there's going to, we're going to make a little fictional game and it's going to be like a very simple, accessible puzzle game. And that's going to be your, your window into this alternate reality game. So that was our idea. And so we made a, a little abstract puzzle game. We called it Chain Factor. Um, and that was the name of the ARG. It was called Chain Factor. And and it it kind of worked. Like it was genuine, like there were like, we like tons of people played this little abstract puzzle game. And then it would like, it would crash and produce these little like uh, clues. And most people ignored that, but some people realized, oh, there's something going on here. Right. And that became the rabbit hole. And then there was a whole real world component of people going around and finding these billboards and posters and TV commercials and decrypting them and and figuring it out. And then that fed back into the puzzle game. So it was a very complex kind of multi-layered structure where we wanted to have both of these things happening, the kind of Sherlock Holmes people who are solving the ARG and just the regular ham and eggers who are playing just the, want a puzzle the, game. the simple puzzle game. Yeah. So it kind of worked great. We had, and it was like, and people like it really was very popular. The puzzle game aspect of it really took off. People love Chain Factor. Yeah. And so when the whole ARG had run its course and had reached its conclusion, we were like, well, what are we going to do with this puzzle game now? Are we just going to shut it down? And we said, no, let's actually make a simpler version of it that doesn't have the ARG hooks. Um, that's just the core gameplay and release it as as an iPhone game. This is the early days of the iPhone. Yeah, I remember. That. We thought this will be a fun experiment. We'll see if it if it works. So so that's the origin that's of good. of Drop Seven. It Dang. started out as this big cross media alternate reality game <laughs> collaborative, and and it still has traces of that. Like there's still something. I think part of the weirdness of Drop Seven, like it's an unusual game. Like what like the the different modes, like the 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 mode that's the same seed over and over again. It's like the fact that there is a kind of mathy quality to it, that it's not quite as accessible as a, as a, as a standard cute puzzle game that you have to kind of wrap your head around this unusual kind of mathematical relationship uh, at the heart of the game. Yeah. I think that's part of the legacy that of, of it, of its origin, of its origin. Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. Let's come to your, your third game, which is from, I guess, around the time that this is all happening or, or shortly after maybe, uh, 2008. Uh, can you tell us about, about this game? What is it and uh, wh why do you love it? Oh, Galcon. Galcon is a little game that almost no one's heard of. 
It is a it is a real-time strategy game that's rather abstract. It's played on the iPhone, and it is one of these games. There's like a genre of games where you have a network of planets and you're sending ships from one planet to another. Spaceward Ho was an early Mac version of this. This is like that, only real time and very small and abstract. There's these little triangle fleets of these ships that are represented as triangles going from one planet to another. And it's just numerical. Like if you hit, you know, if a planet has a value of 80 and you hit it with, you know, 86 ships, you capture that planet and it becomes your color. And now planets that are your color are producing ships over time. And so it's a very, very simple, abstract, real-time strategy game. And... This was a game that, I don't know, occasionally you just find a game that fits into your life, into your head. I just, I mean, I'm including it partly because it's one of the only games, or, or maybe the only game I've ever played, that has even a moderately serious competitive scene at which I was genuinely world-class. Nice. So, <laughs> for, there's a giant, you know, it's like, it, you know, it's like, it's weird. Like, if you look at people who play... Uh, if you look at streamers, for example, who play something like Hearthstone Battlegrounds, right? There's like a handful of them and they're competing to be the best. And what it mostly takes is you have to be good at the game. But you also have to be really dedicated to grind it out, right? To, and and I had a little tiny version of that with, with Galcon where I was just playing it for hours a day. I wasn't streaming. I was just, you know avoiding life you know <laughs> what you do when you play a video game but i got so deep into it. it was such a it is such a again a miniature masterpiece like it's there's nothing extra it is just the bare bones of this one little kind of cognitive problem and i got really deep into it and ended up for a brief window being maybe uh, being among the best if not the best maybe briefly the best in the world at this game you can, you can say it frank thank you i will say it <laughs> i so i'm you know a little bit i'm proud of that and i and it's kind of there on the list to to kind of remind me that such a thing is is possible but i, I would say that there's one particular quality that i loved about galcon that made it the one for me which is you can play galcon 1v1 but the kind of standard way of playing Galcon is in these is these groups of three or four players, and in a group of three of of three or four players, Galcon instantly becomes a very hard problem of the type we call kingmaker. Hey. Do you know what a kingmaker problem is? Uh, no, sure. In in a strategy game, kingmaking is when by my action I can determine. Who wins? I see. If I'm if I'm a player, yeah. if there's, we have a three player game, A, B, and C. If C can make an action that determines which of the two players A or B is going to win, that's king making. Yeah, because and it's gross because you're like, oh well, like why did I bother? Like the 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 outcome of the game was determined arbitrarily. Like it didn't matter whether A or B was what they what choices they made. It's kind of a, a of a known problem in strategy games. But the funny thing about what Galcon demonstrates is the power of short sessions. So like in the same way that imagine that a hand of poker took an hour to play. What a dumb game. Can you imagine a dumb game? You're sitting there with seven deuce for an hour. And then at the end, it's like, well, I had seven deuce, so I lost. It's like <laughs> a hand of poker is stupid. Like it's mostly determined 
by which random cards you got. What a dumb game. Well, guess what? Because it only takes 30 seconds, it, beca it becomes not a dumb game, but one of the greatest games of all time. Right, right. Because that because you play a thousand hands of poker in a night and the beauty of poker emerges over the course of a thousand games, uh, a thousand hands, a thousand sessions, these larger statistical patterns emerge. And that's where the, the beauty of, of, of poker resides. Galcon, in addition to being this tiny little like micro real-time strategy game that required you to like be calculating rapidly and moving around, it also was this deep psychological problem. Because when you attacked someone, like the the, the natural uh, equilibrium in Galcon is for no one to attack anyone. <laughs> so we're all in this little tiny room on this iPhone screen. And if you attack someone, you are basically making a mistake and you are doing them wrong. Correct. You are harming them because you're just helping the other two guys. Like if, mm -hmm. if, if players C and D attack each other, then the winner is going to be either A or B, right? So that's kind of the default setting. And you would think, oh, the game can't survive that. But again, because of the short, these games only last for a minute. And so you're kind of like, you, and you're in the same room with the same players right. over and over again. What happens you three guys again? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can punish people. Like if you do that, you can punish someone the next game for for making a mistake. And so you, what happens is you got this these these norms that emerged about when it's okay to attack, like what is acceptable, what because everyone kind of like intuitively recognized that the game must go on. Like you can't just like sit in that equilibrium forever. And I became good not just at the math and and the micromanagement but at this larger psychological game. Like I understood where everyone was in a room. I felt like I had a really good understanding of where the psychological landscape was. I, I felt like a Machiavellian kind of operator in this space where I could kind of predict how players would respond psychologically, morally, ethically to the kinds of things that, that were happening in, in, in a room and in a session. And so just like in poker, where that element of psychology becomes an important part of being a winning player, I felt like that was a kind of hidden dimension of this game that you would never expect. Yeah, It just looked like the most dry, abstract game in the world, but it was so dramatic and psychologically Fantastic. twisted. Amazing. I spoke to Hank Rogers recently, the Tetris guy, and he picked Spacewood Ho, actually, for one of his games so oh that's brilliant oh that's brilliant amazing <laughs> yeah. oh that's so good yeah oh this is a nice little thread then nice little because thread, those yeah. games are deeply connected deeply connected yeah um okay i just want to quickly come back so you've got this you've got this hit iphone game when your hands drop seven that was never intended to be a standalone iphone game but it is and then it results in well zynga this which was at the time was a very very successful publisher of online games and phone games and facebook games and yeah like that comes in and they buy did they buy the game or do they buy area code oh yeah they did they bought area code they couldn't care less about drop seven. Oh, they didn't right yeah yeah no that drop seven was just like if i if i had really pushed for it i probably could have carved drop seven off right. as its own thing they would not have cared one way or the other because because they were Zynga. They knew how, what, how to make hit games. This Farmville. <laughs> they just they were interested in us because we, by then, had started making Facebook games. And we had a couple of early big hits on Facebook, uh, Parking Wars and um, a couple of other games. And so we were, and we were approaching Facebook the same way that we approached, like, the street. 
like, okay, this is a place you can make games that involve people interacting with each other. Um, the social dimension of it was really interesting to us. Yeah, so we had started to like figure out, oh, look, these social games might be really interesting and cool. I mean, it turned out that they weren't that interesting and cool, I think, in retrospect. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, but at the time, you didn't, you yeah, didn't the, know. It's you like, didn't know, yeah. and so And so when we had, like when, when Zynga wanted to acquire us, it just kind of made sense financially. It looked like, okay, wow, this is kind of like peak like this is like we're probably worth more now than we ever will be, and sure. so we should probably seize this opportunity, and it's a good way for. Uh, I mean, I didn't really want to like I like making games, but I don't really love running a business, and I didn't really want to run a business for the rest of my life, and so I thought this is the perfect timing for this, yeah. and it just means having to get in bed with Zynga for a little bit, and maybe yeah. I can figure that. <laughs> and we thought so at the at the time we were going to be like a kind of R&D studio within Zynga doing original games yeah. and trying to see if we could come up with something genuinely good on Facebook that wasn't just, you know, that wasn't just an exploitative uh, habit-forming, time-on-device manipulative uh, kind of thing, but was genuinely kind of like an original, fun, cool, interesting game. Yeah. And so that's what we that's what we tried to do. It did, didn't really work out. We came up with a, with a game idea called The Friend Game, which I think if... If Zynga had been really behind it, might have been really fun. And it was um, it was a little bit inspired by a game that professional poker players play called "What Does Johnny Lawton Think?" Uh, Johnny Lawton is this random poker guy, but they used to when they're sitting around a table, they would bet on. They would ask uh, someone, "Okay, how how high do you think? How high in feet do you think the Empire State Building is?" Don't say the answer; just lock it in in your head. And then two other people would guess about that. So you're not guessing about, like, you're betting not on how high the Empire State Building is, but on how high Johnny Lawton thinks it is. Right, right. <laughs> and so so we we made a, a game on Facebook that was about, like, guessing what your friends would say in answer to different questions. Yeah, that's a great about idea. what their favorite sport is, or like, what they would do in this social situation. It's just a very much of a party game, kind of a social party game that... And, um, but it really never saw the light of day. It just wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing that fit into to Zynga's uh, strategy. It's and funny, those, those sort of um, experimental games that you, like you're describing there, there was just a time where it felt like there were so many of those experiments happening and now it's just feels like a really lost world. <laughs> None of that seems to be going on anymore in the same way. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's, it's surprising and, and maybe it will come back, but it really, uh, it, it turned out to not be as... Yeah, this kind of promise that I felt that I was hoping yes. uh, would would happen in on Facebook games and things like that just kind of petered out. Um, there wasn't wasn't a lot there. Should we uh, should we come to your fourth game? Sure, I think it's Single House. Now, Simon, you've said that you you've, you haven't played Sync Up House. Yet. I have not. No. Okay, good. So I'm I'm happy to introduce you to this, and I think that if you if you give it a try, you might really love it. I think Sync Up House is is one of my favorite games. It is by a designer by the name of Michael Bro, and Michael Bro, I think, is uh, has a 
has a very good claim on being the greatest living game designer. We we don't really have big game designer, like high profile game designers as much as you would think. No. Like we kind of, like we did for a while. I don't know, maybe I'm just slightly out of it. I mean, we, we sort of do. No, really. Um, but for, for a while we had people like Will Wright, you, you know, you have big personalities. For a while, they tried to make them like, oh, American McGee. We're going to turn him into like a person. <laughs> but he, he really wasn't. <laughs> I think in Japan, you see this more. You've got people like Kojima and Yoko Taro. And, and, and you know what I mean? Like there's a more of a of a culture of a known game designer who's a, a, appreciated as an auteur. And and, <laughs> um, and here, you know, we have people that we like, that we follow. But the idea of like a large figure, influential whose work people kind of recognize as being like I I important and um, and groundbreaking. I really think uh, Michael Bro kind of, it, it, uh, for me and for a lot of my game designer buddies, actually, Michael Bro really is that he's super smart, original, again, working in a kind of miniature mode. He makes very small games <laughs> that are dense bundles of interlocking ideas that usually have something genuinely surprising and original uh, about them mechanically and then are extremely tightly designed to kind of support that central idea. In Syncop House, that central idea is that it's a tiny dungeon crawler. It's mostly kind of abstract. You're navigating through a series of procedurally generated rhythms. And you have these five magic wands that you're using to survive, yes. to, to, to deal with monsters that you encounter. And the central mechanic is that these five wands are, at the beginning of every game, they're procedurally generated. So they, each of them have uh, a bunch of different properties, uh, magic powers that, that, they, that they do that determine their function. Yes. But they're hidden to you. And you only discover them by using them. You discover what their what their properties are by using them. So it's taking this idea, the magic wand in in NetHack, mm -hmm. uh, where you have to like, or the or a potion in NetHack, or a potion in, in Rogue, where you have to test it to learn what it does. And, and it really takes that and it explodes that as as a core mechanic to the to to a game. Which is especially interesting because what happens is that you are suspended between two modes where you want to use the thing and get the most useful effect out of it, but you also want to learn about the thing. You're trying to balance this information management where you're learning what the thing does with the practical uh, questions of getting, of surviving I in see. this world and getting stuff done and, and, and killing monsters and getting treasure. Um, it, it is just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful game. It, it is just, it takes that, that little idea, which is kind of about, uh, explore versus exploit a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, right. um, where you're both, you're both doing something in the world and you're learning about the world at the same time. Anyway, it's a, it's a brilliant example of, of one of the world's best game designers at his peak. And it's a perfect fit for the device it's it's also it's it, as an iphone game it fits into your life it fits into your schedule like it's it's one of those it's a different kind of game in in a way like i think what makes michael bro's work 
challenging and difficult, he's not nearly as well known as he should be, and he's not nearly as mm-hmm. successful as he should be. And part of it is that in Seacope House, every single turn you take matters. It's very unusual in games for this to be the case. Very unusual, even in strategy games, even in the, the brilliant strategy games that people love, Civilization or uh, games like that, right? Tactics games <laughs> that everyone loves. You, you realize like so many of the turns you take in, in those games. There's a lot of crossing the map, isn't there? Yeah, there's just so a lot of walking around, and... <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so in this game, in Seco Pass, and, and it's, it's like, oh, you, it, it always matters. Everything you do matters and in, in, in a way that is is kind of like Ish. surprising so so in in one sense it's a really good fit for a game you play on the subway or when you're standing in line but in another way <laughs> you gotta concentrate it's not because yeah it really does um reward kind of full concentration Ish. at every moment which is a surprising thing for for any game to do okay synco pals i reckon you've you've shifted a few copies of that frank well, uh, you know, time marches on, but uh, I'd like to just quickly return to your story. So uh, you're at uh, Erico now, owned by uh, Zynga, creator of Farmville. So then h- how soon did you then leave to to move to NYU and how did that happen? So this is all kind, this is all kind of happening simultaneously because I always had um, right one foot in the industry as a developer and one foot in academia as someone who loved teaching uh, game design. And so I was kind of doing both at the same time. And then, um, yeah, after Area Code got acquired, that was right around when NYU got this big gift and wanted to start something about games and sort of asked me to be the um, the person to kind of like figure out how to make a department around game design within NYU. And so they just kind of the timing lined up pretty well. And I started going from just teaching one class a semester to like figuring out how to how to create a whole uh, curriculum and, and a whole department around that. So then that became more of a fo- focus for me. So uh, maybe we could come to your fifth and your final game now. Frank, can you tell us about it? It's from 2017 as well. Uh, what's the game and why do you love it? Uh, so it's the game Everything by David O'Reilly. Just a weird, brilliant, creative person. He does uh, Irish artist. Isn't he? Yeah, he's an artist Vermont, and an yeah. animator that who had made an earlier game called Mountain. It's a little experimental game, very weird, kind of oblique game. I, I just kind of bounced off of. I, I didn't really get Mountain, but then he made this PlayStation game, Everything, and it was. I mean, I just found it astonishing. I just. It is so, everything is like, it's like the work of of Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman in films. <sighs> you know what I mean? Like where they are doing something and you're like, oh, you can't do that in a movie. That's not how movies work. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? I do, like, yeah, yeah. can't do, yeah. like being John Malkovich, right? Adaptation, what? 
like that's not how movies work. You can't have, you can't like that's what everything is like. It's yeah, like yeah. The 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 and it's funny because David O'Reilly is is like this kind of impish, perverse uh, guy who wants to like play with conventions and turn things upside down and kind of put a thumb in the eye of your expectations and your predictions about how you're going to interact with this thing. But because of the way it is built around the voice of Alan Watts, this philosopher, this Zen Buddhist philosopher, everything is so sincere. Like it is not a, it is not ironic. It is not tongue in cheek. It is not a joke about transcendence or awakening or spirituality. It is an artist exploring an idea that is bigger than than they are and being 100% honest about it and following it where it goes and using the material of a video game to explore what's what's possible in the world to explore what what the world is yeah. to explore himself and his own way of thinking and, and encountering the world through through the voice of alan watts hey. and and the i can imagine people encountering this and just bouncing off of it like i have no idea how to where to start with this but for me the opposite thing happened which is i was drawn into this game yeah same yeah in, yeah. A, in a way that was really yeah, really special yeah and i just i played it wholeheartedly and and I remember playing it late at night and being very tired and kind of like drifting off. And there's this thing that happens in everything where if you just stop pushing the buttons on the controller, it gently and slowly starts to play itself. It just like if you just leave the controller, it, it will start like just just making up its own inputs and continuing. And, and that like more than just being a clever idea or a gimmick like that i i found that like deeply moving like it actually happened to me <sighs> where i was late at night i'm really tired i'm playing this game i'm kind of falling asleep and i am listening to alan watts talk about how the self is a is is a is a story that that we make up because we're afraid and i'm just like I'm suspended in between playing this game and 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 this game just playing itself and I don't even know where I am anymore. Like this is like I just I loved it so much. I just I I really I I I genuinely found it yeah, profoundly profoundly beautiful and profoundly moving and it's like and 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 like Wipeout back when I when I encountered that I was like, okay, this is the kind of thing I want to make. And the fact that David O'Reilly is just out there making it, like getting, like finding the budget to get people to like help him make, make this strange experimental, um, but very beautiful, very sincere kind of, you know, unique exploration of, of the, the, the meaning of, of software, right? The meaning of interactivity. I just, there's, there's nothing like it. I think of everything. Yeah. It's, I, I'm not going to say it's the last great video game because I think the last great video game is Disco Elysium. I think I think <laughs> Disco Elysium was like for me the thing that like it just felt like the end of an era somehow. Um, I didn't put a Disco Elysium on my list because I don't think I want to play Disco Elysium again. I don't I don't think I want it. Like I would play everything 
I, w- I can imagine ha- being on a desert island <laughs> and having this console that you've made me make and and just having everything on in the mix I think is perfect I'd go to it and just like experience yeah it's like a meditation whereas disco Elysium is like the opposite of a meditation I would say <laughs> yeah yeah but I think of them in in strange ways I I, I think of them as similar for some reason I think they both represent that there is something strange happening in games I do think we are at a place where they are turning into something new they're changing uh i think we're going to see new kinds of games and but uh for me yeah a- everything is the, the culmination of a of a of one era <laughs> of, of video games and yeah i just i really love it that's wonderful yeah it's an incredible game and uh i'm so i'm sort of mad that it wasn't more widely talked about perhaps at the time but yeah i'm so glad you put it on and yet and yet simon it it was it was it was perfectly talked right like like because because the world is the way it is you know what i mean and uh, that's the thing that everything tells us is that there is no other version of the world in which it was talked about more or talked about better or different it's like it there is nothing about it that can be any different and that is beautiful well uh frank thank you thank you so much for this so your games were wipeout rhythm tengoku galcon uh chinko paus and everything that's a wonderful wonderful console uh, we need a name for your console to market to the world um i can't remember if i gave you a heads up about this or not but uh, no oh, i didn't oh. <laughs> to, could, to put you on the spot a bit, then have you got a little yeah. uh, a little brand name we can use for your console? Uh, let's call it the um, uh, maybe it's the uh, let's call it the Solution Machine. Lovely, very nice. Yeah, yeah. Which ends perfectly with everything, I think. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been wonderful, Frank. Thank you, thank you so much, and and also just uh, thank you for me for just all the amazing work you've done over the years and uh, the way you've articulated things that are difficult to express about video games and that's helped me and i know it's helped many other people as well so thank you uh, thank you thank you very much simon it's very sweet of you to say i really appreciate it and as what been a wonderful conversation so thanks a lot for inviting me Frank, Lance, everyone, what a brilliant thinker and articulator of the unique charms and beauties of of video games. And actually hearing him speak about everything, I loved everything by David O'Reilly, who you should go and look up if you're not aware of him and his work. He did a really fantastic episode of the cartoon Adventure Time, just to give you an idea of the variety of work that David has produced. Anyhow, I played everything back when it came out and absolutely loved it. I think I reviewed it for Eurogamer perhaps and put it on my New Yorker's best games of the year list and all of that stuff, but I haven't been back to it. And hearing Frank talk about that and especially with the music playing behind him, it's made me want to yeah, turn the lights down low in the middle of the night and, and fire up everything again. So I'll be doing that this summer maybe you should too i've i've actually subsequently as well downloaded two of the games that i hadn't played before on his list so galcon there's a there's a sequel to galcon available on ios iphone and ipad 
right now Galcon 2 it's a really good game I've been having a lot of fun playing that and Syncopaus as well uh, by uh, Michael Brow Bro Brow I'm not quite sure how you're supposed to say that anyhow um, I'm I'm gonna try and see if I can get Michael on here as well because uh, as Frank's calling him the greatest living our greatest living game designer why wouldn't we want to hear from him so yes I'll uh, I'll try and uh, get hold of Michael and see if I can get him on here back to Frank anyhow that was great wasn't it Frank has been blogging about games and writing about them and of course teaching them uh, I wish we could have got a bit more into his tenure at uh, NYU where he set up the game studies program and taught there for I think 12 years so a significant amount of time and he's still involved in some way I'm not exactly sure how but um yeah we uh, to, as you can as you can hear from that time was getting running out on us and I don't want to he'd already been very generous with his time so I don't want to keep him for too long uh if you want to hear more from Frank though he has a book out this autumn uh, autumn to winter so it's out on the 3rd of October 2023 it's called The Beauty of Games by Frank Lance it's uh, coming out with MIT Press uh, certainly in the US in October I think it's out in the UK and we're English speaking European areas as well I'm not quite sure if it's getting translated and, and taken elsewhere but certainly in October if you are an English speaker and reader then get hold of the beauty of games you can also play frank's most recent game i think i mentioned it in the introduction there called babble royale which is a very cute spin on the battle royale phenomenon babble royale is a version of battle royale except you're making words as in scrabble and while the map gets smaller and smaller really fun he made that with his son james who is also an accomplished game designer Lots of Frank Lance content for you to go and enjoy. He's also on Twitter, of course. Uh, he is at F-L-A-N-T-Z. Flance, at Flance. So, yeah, go give Frank a follow. Listen, he's always worth listening to on games uh, for my money. Uh, one, of, one of the great thinkers and writers on games that we have. You can follow the podcast as well on Twitter if you're still there. Uh, I haven't set up on all the others yet. Let's see. Let's see where the dust falls on all that stuff. But for now, on Twitter at My Perfect Console with the O's removed from console. You can also follow me on there at Simon Parkin. Uh, if you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash My Perfect Console for just $5 or £4.50 or whatever your local currency is a month around that. Um, you can get your episodes early and ad-free, you'll get access to the community, you'll get bonus episodes uh, and lots of other lots of other things that uh, go up on there and there'll be more and more as time goes on, I'm sure. So yeah, it's also just a great way to show your support for the podcast. We've got a nice little community there. Uh, come and join in and uh, then we'll keep making these for as long as we can yes I can't don't I'm not sure if I've mentioned this so far but I'm very excited to say that at the live event the My Perfect Concert Live that's happening at WASD Festival that's happening in September we're we're ready to announce our guests for that um, I'll probably 
will have done a post on this or put it on social media. But if you haven't seen yet, then our guest for that is the brilliant David Wilson. David has had a long and very illustrious career, which we will talk about on stage during that episode. But perhaps most notably, he was director of communications for Sony PlayStation for no less than 19 years from the launch of the PlayStation 2 in the year 2000 all the way up to 2019 and PlayStation 5. So uh, that's a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be talking about all sorts of exciting moments in his career. Prior to that, he was head of European communications, I think, at EA all through the 90s during the FIFA and the Madden releases. And then even before that, in the late 80s and early 90s, he was working at Dennis Publishing, I think on your Sinclair. So, uh, yeah, if you're a bit longer in the tooth, then maybe you read his words at some of those magazines. Anyway, very exciting guest. And uh, I've actually already met up with David just to talk about some of the things that we're going to be allowed to talk about on stage. And he is pretty willing to be pretty open, I'd say. So expect to talk about the Daily Mail doing a big story about goat sacrifice for the God of War 2 launch and his perspective on that. Uh, Get ready to talk about the Church of England kicking up a big stink about the Manchester Cathedral appearing in Resistance 2 and of course lots of positive things as well. The great successes that Sony's had as well as the crises that David has had to deal with. Um, Along his brilliant career, he, of course, now works for NetEase Games, uh, where he's looking after people like Suda51 and Nagoshi as well. So anyhow, it's going to be a really good time. Come along. It is happening at the WASD Festival. That is happening on Thursday, the 14th of September 2023 at 7 o'clock in the evening in London, just search WASD and My Perfect Console and you'll come up with a link to buy a ticket. Any problems, drop me a line. I'm sure it'll be fine and we can help sort you out. Uh, so yeah, anyway, lots of exciting things to look forward to there. I hope you've been having a lovely summer as well. Uh, I'll be back again next week with another guest, their five games and one more Perfect Console. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.